Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Hey, flannel friends, let's stand for the reading of the word. Psalm 132, verses 1 through 5. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm, I am not a great gift giver. Has anyone ever heard of the five love languages? Um, you know, I forget them all. Pers- uh, physical touch, um, words of affirmation. Well, gift giving, if, I ha- if you could have a sixth love language that's like in massive deficit below everything, it would be gift giving for me. I'm not great at it. I happen, though, to marry a gift giver. My wife, Sarah, is a fantastic gift giver, and she loves to get gifts. And I hope you're okay with me talking about this here, Sarah. We'll see how we do. So anyway, to put it lightly, our 18 and a half years of marriage have been a learning curve for me. Um, but there was one time where I got Sarah a gift that was so good that she didn't even know she wanted it. It was, it was almost a total flop, though. It was, it was just about the worst fail of all time. But I'll tell you what happened. Sarah loves this band called The Bleachers. Does anyone know The Bleachers, by the way? Strange Desire. Um, think Summer. Think a little hint of, like, Neo, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, think Beach, New Jersey. Sarah loves to play The Bleachers when she's on vacation, and it's just her joy. It's her joy language. So anyway, it was her birthday. And I heard that the bleachers were coming to Boston. So I said, I know, I'll get a ticket. Now, one thing is, Sarah and I have never been to a concert before, ever. Like Sarah, in her previous life, when she was cool, before she met me, she, um, she went to concerts in college, but I've never been to a concert with her. Anyway, I got her tickets, and I picked her up from work, and I wanted it to be a surprise. So I blindfolded her and walked her out of her office, And she thought, okay, maybe we're going down the street. I said, get in the car. We drove to Boston. She was blindfolded the whole way. See, this is my gift giving. Um, I wish I had told her to use the bathroom, but that's like, you know, that's another story. Anyway, we get to Boston. It's freezing cold. It's raining. I didn't, I forgot to tell Sarah to bring a warm clothing. We're in this huge line. It's stretched all the way, you know, three times around the venue. Um, and after 20 minutes in the rain uh, in March in Boston, I, Sarah's like, what are we doing here, Greg? And I'm like, all right, here's my moment. Sarah, I got you tickets to a Bleachers concert. And Sarah said nothing for like, you know, several seconds. And I don't exactly remember what she said, but it was like, oh, wow, okay. That was dot, 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 not what I expected. And my heart (laughs) sank. (laughs) 
I thought this was the worst swing and the miss of all time. So I, try, I tried to laugh it off. I tried to play cool. I'm like, well, you know, we don't have to do it, Sarah. We can, um, we can punt. I'll go take you out for dinner. Um, she said, no, no, there's no turning back now. This is just not what I had in mind. <laughs> womp, womp. But she was, she was trying to be a good sport. She was trying to give me an E for effort. So finally, the line started moving. <clears throat> We got inside, and the concert venue was like, it was really cool. It was a cool layout. It was kind of standing, but there's these little bar top things, and it was like, oh, she said, oh, this isn't what I, this is cooler than I thought it would be. Okay. And so I got Sarah her favorite beverage, and she found this great spot to see the stage. She like figured out how to muscle her way up to, the, to the, this perfect spot, and secretly over like 20 minutes, and we ended up in the best seats in the house. And then the opening band came on, and she said, you know, this is, this is fun. I haven't been to a concert since college. And finally, the bleachers came on stage. And instead of their new stuff that nobody knows, like they played their old albums. And Sarah knew every word of every song, and she sang them all out loud like she would in the front row of church. And Sarah had the time of her life. <clears throat> Thank you. And afterwards, she said, Greg, you were right. This is just what I wanted. This is what I needed most on my birthday. What Sarah wanted most was to see the bleachers. Do you ever wonder what God wants most? It's funny that we're so often aware of what we want from each other, and we're often aware of, like, what we want from God. But how many of us pause to ask the question, what does God want most? On, he, I guess every day is his birthday, but what does God want most of all? What is it that touches the heart of God, like I touched Sarah's heart at the Bleacher concert? What does God want more than anything else? Some of us have been followers of Jesus for a very long time, and we only have a vague sense of what is it God wants most from us. What does he want? Does he want me to come to church more often? Does he want me to sin less? Does he want me to share my faith? Does he want me to serve the poor? What does he want from me? There you go. So if we don't understand what God wants, how on earth are we supposed to touch his heart? And so that's what I want to talk about today. What does God want most of all? How can we touch the heart of God? And so for that, that's why we're looking this morning at David, Israel's greatest king. By the way, David was not a perfect man. In fact, David made some significant mistakes in his life. David was actually a hot mess for significant portions of his life. He failed miserably. So miserably that if you and I did some of the things that David did, we would probably be in jail right now. But there was one thing that David did right. David understood God's heart. He knew what God wanted most. Samuel told Saul, Israel's first king that was rejected, in order to put David uh, in, the king, in the kingship, he says, but now your kingdom will not endure, Saul, because the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, right? Who was that man? David. God has sought out a man after his own heart to appoint him ruler of his people. 
David was a man after God's heart. There's something about David's heart that's important for us to understand if we want to know how to touch God's heart. Um, when Samuel came finally to anoint the sons of Jesse, right? God's like, go to Jesse's house. One of Jesse's sons is going to be king. Samuel goes one after the next, right? He brings all of David's, I think it was six brothers in front of him. They were all bigger, taller, you know, stronger than David. And, and over and over, God says, no, that's not the one. And the Lord said to Samuel, First Samuel uh, 16, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So there's something about David's heart that pleased the Lord. What was it? Was it, after all, a secret chord that David played and pleased the Lord? Was it the fourth, the fifth, the minor fourth, minor chord, the major lift? No, it was not that. I want to share the two reasons that David touched the heart of God. And I want to share three things that that means for us. Sound good? First of all, David touched God's heart because he understood what God wants most. What God wants most, friends, of all, is not a bleacher's concert. God wants to dwell among his people. God's deepest desire is to be with us. It's to be in all of him, his glory, his presence next to us. This is the, the theme. If you trace the Bible, by the way, the Bible is one story that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Lots of different chapters, but it's one overarching narrative. And if you trace this story at every critical point, you will see what God wants is to be with his people. What was God doing in the first chapters of Genesis? He was getting close to human beings. He was close enough to breathe into Adam's nostrils. He was close enough to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, to walk with them, talk with them. By the way, the garden, uh, if, um, and I'm forgetting the theologian's name, Greg, you'll remember somebody or other, uh, wrote an amazing book about how the Garden of Eden is actually a temple. It's temple language, right? When the ancients would have read about this place where God and humanity were together, they said, oh, it's a temple. It was a meeting place between God and humans. It was the overlap of heaven and earth. God's original purpose was to dwell with human beings in a place where heaven and earth overlapped. And then our job was to extend that temple into the world. Flip a few pages forward in the story, right? Israel is in Egypt, and they come out of slavery. God delivers them through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. There's a lot of things God could have been interested in. What, was, what did he spend most of Exodus and Leviticus telling them how to do? It was how to build a tent where God's presence could dwell among the people, right? Fast forward, we'll skip David for now, but let's move forward to the center of the story, Jesus. In Jesus, what was God doing? He was coming himself to dwell among his people. John 1 says, the word became flesh, and what? He dwelt among us. Literally, the word is he pitched his tent, or he tabernacled, among us. Jesus, fully man, was a walking temple. He was a tabernacle, a place where God and humanity could dwell together, where heaven and earth kissed each other. 
Jesus told the Pharisees and the scribes as he approached his death, he said, tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, they were confused. But the temple Jesus was talking about was his own body. Jesus was a temple. And after Jesus rose from the dead, what happened to that temple? It no longer stayed in one place, but it multiplied. And through the Spirit of God, it was no longer just Jesus that was intended to be a walking temple. It was every single human being that invited the Spirit of God into their life, that believed in Jesus. We all became a temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Do you know that, friends? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Finally, all the way to the end, Revelation chapter 21. Fast forward to the ending. What happens at the end of history? God comes to dwell among us in his fullness for good. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer a sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, dressed as a bride, beautifully prepared for her husband. By the way, some of us saw Mark in Iran yesterday get married. Wasn't that beautiful? The two becoming one. Friends, this is the end of the story, is we are fully united with God. The two become one. And listen to this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. This is what God's looking forward to. More than anything else is dwelling with us. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What God wants most, friends, is to dwell among us. David touched God's heart because he understood that. So the, the second reason David touched our heart, he understood God's longing, and David shared God's longing. David wanted most the very thing that God wanted most. Why is he a man after God's own heart? Because his heart beat the very same way God's heart beat. David wanted to host the presence of God. From the beginning of his rule, right, he becomes king. What is the first thing David did as king? You can tell a lot, too, about a leader and about what their priorities are by the very first thing they do. So, the minute David took Jerusalem, the Jebusite capital, and he said, this is going to be the capital of Israel. The very next thing he did, he's like, where's the ark? Where is the ark of the covenant? Where is God, the place God's presence rests? I want to bring the ark to the center of the city. David's first priority as a leader was for Israel to be a nation centered on the presence of God. You know, we center our lives, we prioritize so many different things in our lives, don't we? Our career, the Pats game, that's Noah's highest priority today, right, Noah? He's nodding. Cowboys. Are you rooting for the Cowboys? Okay, all right, good. School, church, there's so many things that we're thinking about and prioritizing, but what David wanted is for the presence of God to be at the center so a few chapters after that, David has rest from his enemies, and this is really important. This is, there are key moments in the Bible, by the way, when covenants are made that are really important. Like, the whole Bible is important, but there's certain moments that are very important to pay attention to. This is one of them. This is the Davidic covenant. 
uh, 1 Samuel 7 says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him a rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark remains in a tent. And Nathan said, Whatever, you know, do whatever you want to, David. Go for it. God didn't tell David to build him a house. David came up with that idea all on his own because this was his deepest longing. He wanted to host the presence of God. In Psalm 132, our scripture today says it's not just an idea David had. It's, it's so strong within him that it's a vow. Lord, remember David in his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house. I will not go to my bed. I won't let sleep come to my eyes until I find a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So this is a question I want to ask today. How important is the presence of God to us? How does it compare to our other priorities, like sleep, for example? Any parents of young children sleep? Sleep is a high priority in my life. I know that. I have, I have kids that come into our bed sometimes in the middle of the night, and uh, I, I, I tend not to wake up. Sleep is a high priority. But for David, even more important than sleep was finding a place for God to dwell. And so this is how God responds to David's desire to build him a house. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house since the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt. To this day, I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's response to David in this passage is really interesting. I think it's a little bit like Sarah's response to me at the Bleachers concert. When I told her, this is what I'd like to do for you, Sarah. I'd like you to see this Bleachers concert. Sarah was like, almost didn't know what to say for a minute. You want to do what for me, David? You want to build me a house? I never asked you to do that. I never asked anyone to do that. I've been, I think I've been fine in a tent. But it's almost like David knew something that was so deep inside the heart of God that God hadn't even articulated it to anyone. God knows his long-term plan. He's going to bring Jesus to the earth, right? He's going to dwell with us forever, but he hadn't told anyone that. He hadn't articulated, he hadn't uttered that longing, but somehow David already knew. Do you get it? This is what touched God's heart. He's like, how did you know I wanted to go to a bleachers concert, David? And then, and, then, and then God says, you know, actually, David, I do want a house. I do. You get it. And David, you're not going to build me this house. It's not time for that yet. But I'm so touched that that's what you wanted to do for me, that David, I tell you what, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord declares to you, going on in the passage, that the Lord himself will build a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring 
to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is, and by the way, he's sort of talking about Solomon, but he's not really talking about Solomon here. He is talking about Jesus. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will build you a house, David. I will set one of your descendants on the throne. And through David, your great, 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 great grandson, who, by the way, will now be my own son. David, you and I are going to go in on this together, right? You get, you know, the Y chromosome or whatever. I'll take the X chromosome. And together, we are going to have a son who will build me a house. In fact, this son will be a walking temple, a walking dwelling place. And every person who sees your grandson, David, will see the face of God. And every leper who touches your grandson will find healing. And every outcast who eats with your grandson will find my welcome. And every religious scholar who debates with your grandson will understand the true heart of their faith. And every Gentile who meets with your grandson will be adopted into my family. And your grandson and my son will be a new Eden, a new tabernacle a meeting place between heaven and earth. David touched God's heart because he wanted most what God wanted most. So as we close, I'm going to just share a few thoughts with us. What does this mean for us today? And uh, worship team, you can just come up because we're going to move into a time of response. David touched God's heart. Now, what does that mean for us? I want to share three takeaways for us. Especially this month, by the way, is where did it go? Here, here we are. We are moving into this season of prayer. And part of my hope today is not just to thought, well, how do we pray? Well, I don't know. I don't know your personality. I don't know where you've been in your relationship with God. But I want to talk about why we pray. What's the heart behind prayer? And the heart behind prayer is David's heart. We want to build a dwelling place for the Lord. So the first takeaway is, let David shape your view of God. Let David shape your own deepest longings. So do you guys remember Nick Cage and National Treasure? I love it because Nick Cage is always up there too. See him? Nick Cage, Jesus. Um, he found the secret pair of glasses. Remember that? He, I don't forget where they were in the Independence Hall or something. And he found these glasses, and when he put them on, he realized he could see what was really written on the Declaration of Independence or something. We, we, I'll have to go watch it again. But David gives us a pair of glasses through which to see the heart of God and through which to assess our own priorities. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what, who is your God? What does your God want most? Does he want you to do better, try harder? Does your God want your money? Does he want your time? Does he want you to feel shame or guilt about your sin? Does God want you to suffer? Does he want you to learn something? Does he want you to have more faith? No. God wants to dwell with you more than anything else. He wants you to make him a house to dwell with your life. He wants you to be a walking temple. He wants other people to experience his presence in you. 
If we don't know what God wants, we can't touch his heart. But David shows us what God wants. What do you most want? What is your deepest longing? The reason David touched God's heart is that his longing was God's longing. So what's most important to you? Is it safety? Is it security? Is it to be entertained? Do you want your kids to succeed? Do you want to be liked? Do you want to be famous, successful, upwardly mobile? Do you want to get your darn doctorate done with? Do you want to travel? Do you want to take a vacation? Do you want to get a massage, have a drink, get married? Do you want to have better sex? Do you want the Pats to win? Do you want to avoid failure? Besides our view of God, the thing we want most is the other most important thing about us. And that's why David's in the middle of the Bible. That's why God records his prayers for us. Not that he was perfect, but God wants us to want what David wanted, to host his presence. And so the question David poses to us, is that what we want most? I heard a story that Keller went to CVS uh, the other day, and Keller thought she wanted, what was it, Tootsie Rolls? I wasn't here, I was sick. But I heard about this, and it moved my heart. And Keller realized that if she had her hands full of Tootsie Rolls, she couldn't grab hold of the unicorn, right? There was the stuffed unicorn. And she said, no, that's what I want most. And so my prayer, even as we're talking this morning, is could we say, actually, you know, there's a lot of things we want, but we really want that most, Lord. We want to host your presence. Soren Kierkegaard said this, purity of heart is to will one thing. And that's what David did. One thing I have asked of the Lord. This only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Let's David, let, let David shape our view of God and let David shape our own deepest longing. Here's the second takeaway. Friends, join David in his resolve. Resolve to host God's presence. David swore an oath to the Lord. He said, I won't rest until I find a dwelling place for the Lord. Here's the crazy thing about this is David never got to build a house for God. You know that? He wanted to do it his whole life. He had to wait there looking at the tent. It wasn't time yet. David did everything he could. By the way, the end of his life, you know what he's doing? He's out raising funds. He's gathering all the materials. He knows he can't build the temple. He's going to try to set Solomon up to do it. But the wild thing is that actually we have the opportunity to do what David never could. Friends, we live after the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We live after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be a temple. What David longed for, we can do any day we want to. The only thing we lack is resolve. I want to share um, <clears throat> about my spiritual hero, Frank Laubach. 
I talked about him last time, so hopefully you weren't here for that. But um, I didn't share, like, all the deets about his life. He is an amazing guy, lived in the early 20th century. He, um, he was smart. He went to Princeton for undergrad. Uh, he went to Columbia for his doctorate. He also had an MDiv from Union Theological Seminary. And the Lord um, called him to go to the Philippines as a missionary. This was in 1915 or so. And he spent 15 years laboring uh, in the Philippines. And then he hit this moment, 15 years in, where he, he began to feel deeply dissatisfied with his spiritual life. He said, I've been a Christian minister for 15 years, but I'm still not living my days in moment-to-moment -moment obedience and pursuit of God. And so he resolved to try something. He said, every few minutes, I'm going to try to line up my actions with the will of God. And I'm going to try to become aware of God's presence every few minutes. And his friends and the spiritual leaders at the time told him, hey, man, you're crazy. This sounds really fanatical, and, this is for, and it's not even possible after all. But in 1929, Frank Laubach resolved to try living all of his waking moments in conscious listening to the inner voice, asking without ceasing, what father do you desire said? You remember what Sarah was talking about with the kids this morning, pray without ceasing? Basically, he resolved to say, I'm going to be a walking house of prayer. Here, here's, what, here's, here's the question. So he goes into all these experiments. I'm not going to read about it all, but you should sometime. He decided eventually what I'm going to do is I'm going to resolve not to get out of bed in the morning until my mind is set on and my concentration on God is settled. And the question he was preoccupied with his whole life is this. Can we think God's thoughts all the time? Can God be in my mind and my heart? Can I be aware of God all the time? Or are there periods where other things push God out? And I want to quote his journal here. I think this is really interesting. Admitting that he thought there must be periods where God is excluded from our thoughts, Frank writes this. I am changing my view. We can keep two things in the mind at once. Indeed, we cannot keep one thing in the mind more than half a second. Mind is a flowing thing. It oscillates. Concentration is merely the continuous return to the same problem from a million angles. We do not think of one thing. We always think of the relationship of at least two things, and more often of three or more things. So again, he's, he's really trying to figure this out, and he says, so my problem is this. Can I bring God... In, back in my mind flow every few seconds so that God shall always be in my mind as an after image. She'll always be one of the elements in every concept and precept. He is a, this is a Princeton grad, lofty, 1930s academic language. Let me dumb it down. What is Frank asking? Can I make my mind and heart and soul a dwelling place for God? Can I resolve to keep turning my thoughts back to God so that my inner world is a place where God is always present, so my life is saturated with God, so that I pray without ceasing? And listen to the next line from his journal. This is what he says. I choose to make 
the rest of my life an experiment in answering this question. I choose to make the rest of my life an experiment in asking this question. And that's the resolve, friends. That's David's resolve. I will not rest until I find a dwelling place for the Lord. I choose to make the rest of my life an experiment. So how did it go? Did Frank's life become a walking temple? Dallas Willard says this, Within weeks of beginning his experiment, Frank began to notice differences. By the end of January 1930, and with much still to learn about his method, he had gained a sense of being carried along by God through the hours, of cooperation with God in the little things, which he'd never before, felt before. He said, I need something, and I turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work. We all have to work, right? But there is God working along with me. He discovered on March 9, 1930, that this hour can be heaven. Any hour for anybody can be rich with God. Reflecting upon the results of two months of strenuous effort to keep God in his mind every minute, this is what he says. This concentration upon God is strenuous, but everything else has ceased to be so. The inner transformation was substantial and with real outward effects. God does work a change. The moment I turn to him is like turning on an electric current, which I feel through my whole being. There's a real presence that affects other people directly and also makes intercessory prayer an exercise of power and cooperation with God. What I want to say is um, Frank Laubach was an amazing man. But the reality that he accessed is available for all of us. We are, are wired to be temples, friends. If you have welcomed Jesus into your life, the electricity of the Holy Spirit is flowing all around you. But what we have to do is to resolve to plug in, right? The light switch is on the wall. We have to resolve to turn it on. Many of us are walking around as if we're in the dark by candlelight, when God is waiting with electricity all around the house. We're cooking with kerosene camp stoves, and we've got a shiny new induction cooktop right in our kitchen. And so, friends, we need to resolve. And the third takeaway, this is where I want to wrap, is this month, I want to call us as a community to take a next step in your prayer life. We're going to do this together like we need each other. Let's, let's exercise holy peer pressure. But I just want to share a couple thoughts. Some of us may, may feel like, I, I'm terrible at prayer. Sometimes I feel like that. Perhaps the next step is just this. Give God your best five to ten minutes of the day and see what he does with it. For some of us, perhaps, we think, oh, I could never be a temple. Maybe um, we were praying this morning, Mike and I were praying, and we're like, I wonder if some people are feeling shame or guilt or that they're not good enough for God. And I think this is why it's awesome that it's David. He was a hot mess. And God honored his desire to build a house. He'll honor yours. For some of us, Maybe we need to find a prayer coach or a prayer buddy or a prayer mentor or read a prayer book. For others of us, 
Maybe it's just time to hit refresh on your resolve. For some of us, <clears throat> by the way, Brother Lawrence said this. He said, it's very easy to practice the presence of God. It's very simple. All you have to do is renounce everything that doesn't help you. And I think for some of us, there, maybe there's clutter in our lives that's taking up room. You know what it is. Maybe this is the month to set it aside. And then this is the final challenge. I want to challenge us. Some of us have been on this journey of prayer a really long time. I'm looking at you, Laura DiPilato. Looking at people that are like you. What's the next meaningful goal that we could set? I love how Frank Laubach set incremental goals for himself. He was a sociologist in late modernity. And he said, I'm going to set realistic goals. What if I spend every minute in God's presence? What, you know, what would represent a meaningful goal towards prayer without ceasing for you? I just want to close with David's resolve. And Lord, just pray for us as a church. <clears throat> Lord, help us to swear an oath to you, an oath to the Lord, a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to come to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till my life becomes a house for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Amen.